Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com chapters. There you'll find over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. On this episode of Chapters, in our first year on the air, we've been privileged to share the stories of readers' lives through the books that have meant the most to them, whether it be readers who love books enough to dress up as favorite authors. Yeah, oh, of course. I dress up as, um, well, yeah, I guess he counts, um, Ernest Hemingway. Or readers who use books to get through challenging times. I attached all kind of meaning to that dream, and it's what sort of got me out of that dysfunctional phase. And in looking back on it, it's just fascinating to me that here I was reading this book about dreams and people following the dreams. And of all things, it's like Stephen King. On this episode, we want to revisit some of those moments from the past year. I'm Mary Mahoney, and this is Chapters. This show began its life with a simple question. How can your experiences as a reader reveal the story of your life? Think about the books on your bookshelves. The books with the well-worn spines. The ones you won't loan out for fear they won't come back. Why do those books continue to mean so much to you? What story do they tell about moments in your life so far? Could someone create a kind of portrait of you based only on the books on your shelves? The idea for this show came from visits I made to archives over the past few years doing research on the history of bibliotherapy, or the use of books as medicine. I would visit libraries and archives looking for sources that could explain how people in the past believed their books healed them, and in the course of these visits I met librarians who shared experiences in their own lives of times they believed books offered real therapeutic value. I can remember one time a few years ago, I was at a library and a at the very end of the day, the librarian came up to me and said, before you leave, I just want to tell you this story that I was in my 20s and I was trying to figure myself out and I was having a hard time and I was really depressed. And somehow, and I don't know how, I stumbled on a copy of Brideshead Revisited by Evelyn Waugh. And to this day, I'm not sure why this book at this time meant so much to me, but it ended up being the thing that started to pull me out of this depression, and it's really meant a lot to me in my life. And when I drove home that day, I remember thinking I felt really humbled that a stranger could share such a personal story with me. I also wondered what that story meant. Why was Brideshead Revisited such a healing book? What did it heal exactly? Was there any connection between the themes of that book and her own life? Ultimately, I really wanted to know how her relationship with that book could tell me more about the story of her life, how knowing her as a reader could help me to know her as a person. That desire to know someone through their books drives chapters. I make this show with the help of technical advisor and producer, Taylor, without whom this show would not be possible. Literally. She does all the sound, editing, and wrote our theme music. A year ago, 
We started to gather stories of readers' lives. Through the generosity and openness of our guests, we have heard incredible stories. Guests have shared not only how books have helped them through difficult moments, but also how books can offer an escape, inspire a laugh, captivate one's imagination, cure boredom, inspire, console, connect readers with one another, and in the process, teach readers something about themselves. Here are some of our favorite stories from the past year. This is Chapters. A prominent theme on our show is the way books can help readers understand themselves. When I interviewed Liz Fleming on episode 19, I was so struck by her energy and passion for treasured authors and books. It's no surprise to learn that Liz is an actress who runs her own acting school. Some readers wish they could live inside books or be like favorite authors, and Liz shared that she used to dress up as her favorite author as a child. The author in question? Ernest Hemingway. Yeah, oh, of course. I dressed up as, um, well, yeah, I guess he counts. Um, Ernest Hemingway. Uh, what? Yeah, because I, <laughs> I, I, even as a kid, you know, my, my, I think when I was seven or eight, I got my hands on Old Man in the Sea um, for the first time. And so I went through a period of like wanting to dress like Ernest Hemingway. I just, I, I had a almost an unhealthy, maybe, or maybe just quirky. We'll go with quirky. Um, a quirky obsession with um, Ernest Hemingway and his his words and the, and the way that he wrote. And even as a small child that it could, like, I understood every word. It was very imagistic. Um, but yeah, definitely he, I definitely have dressed up as him. The Old Man in the Sea has been a touchstone in Liz's life. She has her original copy of it and showed it to me during our interview. Her misspelled scribbling of Ernest Hemingway still in the back of the book where she left it at six years of age. I asked her why the book resonated with her. Where was she in this book? Well, you know what? I was always really in love with the sea. Um, because growing up in Houston, I was right near Galveston. Uh, so I was there for every birthday, honey, like all as often as I could get. And it's the Gulf. It's not like, you know, the Pacific or anything, but it's still the sea. And so I already loved the sea and I already had a, a love and understanding of fishing, like I said. But there was something about, like as a kid that registered for me reading this book, about independence. Now that I'm saying that, I'm like, oh, that's Princess Marty Pants. There's like a reoccurring theme here. But for mm. me, it was this independence that he was able to go out and 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 sur- not only survive and live, but like win, you know? Mm. And, and that for me as a kid was like, I really have all that I need like right here in myself. You know what mm. I mean? So I think it was mm. that lesson of independence and then love that is not required. I remember as a kid, being so touched by the relationship of Santiago and the boy because he wasn't his natural son. It was a love. It was a chosen love. Mm. And and that really, um, I I was adopted. So as an adopted kid reading this, I was like, Oh, it's that chosen love. And I, and I really just kind of, and he was closer to that man than he was to his parents. And it was the, the, the family that we choose. Um, so that really, uh, hit me a lot as a kid. So many of our guests reflected on the books they loved as children and tried to explain why some books so captivated their imaginations. Alexis Boylan, a guest on the episode we taped during our visit to Bryn Mawr Bookstore in Cambridge, Massachusetts, reflected on her attachment to Anne Frank's diary, an attachment that stemmed from her family history and of her own attempt to make sense of her own world and her place within it. In between Laura Ingalls Wilder and... um, 
uh, Ernest Hemingway sort of like preteen teen year stuff. I went through a very dark um, Anne Frank phase, um, wherein like I read everything about Anne Frank, and then I read everything about the Holocaust. And then my mom started to get worried about it (laughs) as like an attentive parent would. And so then I wasn't allowed to have any Holocaust because it was all I was like, we would go at our school. This was in about fifth, sixth grade. So like when you read it and, you know, and so we were allowed to bring three books home from the library and about like the seventh week I brought home exclusively Holocaust oriented books. My mom was like, no Holocaust books, which just simply meant that I had to hide my Holocaust books under the bed. Like, why like, do you think you were so into Holocaust books and Anne Frank? Because I became a little convinced. So my grandmother um, had lived in Europe when before World War Two and when World War Two broke out, and she, um, uh, her husband um, uh, was Czech, and he was actually. Um, he was uh, worked for the resistance in, Czech- in Czechoslovakia, um, uh, and was just sort of a, a nationalist against German aggression. And um, he was killed in a concentration camp. But that wasn't my grandmother. That was my grandmother was married before. Um, uh, but so then she went to. So she was in. Prague for a while, and then she w- uh, she was in Pro- Vienna, and then actually she left Vienna and went back down to like the day that Vienna was when the Nazis came through Vienna, she left Vienna, and because she had sort of wanted to stay put in Vienna, because I thought I, she had thought that the that the Austrians would actually fight more because she had been talking like they were all like no you know Austria is its own country, and then they were like welcome and it was just like really traumatic like she was like oh people are horrible oh that's like I get that now that you know so then she went down to Prague and then she left Prague and then she went to Paris and then she had to leave Paris and then she went to London and she had her she had two kids at that point and then um, she got out on one she was an American citizen so oh, okay. so she was just like she was living in Europe she was married to a European like you know all of like she was got European it. Um, uh, but um, there's uh, in London then um, she lives she, she after like I guess the second or third night of uh, one of the blitzes the American consulate was like you either have to you either have to leave, like we're doing the last like taking people with children home like you either have to like stay in your, in England and good luck to you or you have to come back to the states so, um, and she often ta- like so she o- often talks about about Europe and about those experiences and that sort of thing. Um, and so I think a little bit like I just sort of like my little brain just sort of that felt very present. Like it felt very like possible. Like that that felt very. Um, and then when she came to the states, she she my grandfather was Jewish, so. So then there was also this part that was like this sort of like, you know, I would have been, you know, I would have been understood as a Jew. And like, so there just, it was like a lot of sort of like, what is your identity and who are you? And like sort of me working through a lot of that. But, yeah. um, and then I also, and this I think is very much kids reading. I very much became sort of obsessed with like secret hiding places, like, like, 
where would I like where would I hide where would I take my family like my mom and dad were just like so stupid they couldn't see the writing on the wall but like so like I wasn't gonna be able to help them like when the Nazis came but I could maybe help my brother like he was small he listened to me more than my parents did you know like he understood that this was this was real like we needed to think about this so you know I did some very serious planning some very like you know And I actually got in trouble because I started stockpiling food, but I didn't really understand 100% like, you know, how food ages. Uh-oh. So I got into a little trouble with that. Did you hide it in your hiding place? I, had it, I hid it in my brother's closet. That's smart. So, <laughs> smart. So he initially got in trouble and then he was like, he, he didn't really, he didn't get, he, he's, you know, he's not a snitch. So he was just like, I don't know how that, I don't know how all that milk got there. <laughs> but my mom, I think wasn't you know was like does this have anything to do with the totally forbidden holocaust books that you continue to bring them <laughs> from school so we had to have a big talk about how probably you know the nazis were not going to be coming anytime soon and the bethlehem pennsylvania was likely not to be like a first stop location so like and that she promised that she would like keep up with the news and like just you know i mean i didn't pull it didn't make me feel i mean like how long did it take you to kind of like how old were you when this was happening and when did you kind of come out of it Probably in the fifth and sixth grade, and um, it's funny. I think it was also just like a super distraction. My parents got separated at that point, and my grandmother had actually moved down to live with us at that point. So I was actually okay. just like hearing a lot of. So it was like a, sort of like a lot of disruption in the family. But my parents were, like, super groovy, so, like, it was, like, disruptive, but we all talked about it, so, like, it, oh, okay. it wasn't disrupt. like, it, it, like, nothing, it was, like, never an argument, and, you know, like, and if anything, I saw both my parents, like, more all of a sudden, like, they became, like, really, like, you know, like, we're getting here. a divorce, so here we are, <laughs> so, so I think that, um, you know, which, was, so it was a, it was a disruptiveness that was sort of, like, um, I think I sort of felt um, what was interesting is I think that I was looking for something that was like extreme and demonstrative and like clear like being locked in a room with your family because people are trying to kill you like that felt like concrete and like I could put my arms around what that felt like and what that meant and like exactly like sort of feelings of loss or sacrifice but what I was experiencing had some of those feelings but then like what was there really to complain about like there's mom there's dad like mm. live in the same house go to the same sc- like you know so it was just yeah. it was sort of a little bit I think in retrospect like that I sort of um I found some affection for this idea of like a circumstance that was outside of your control but that was so clear to everyone around you, like that the stakes yeah. were clear and high and, and sort of epic. Hmm. And I, I stayed very attentive to, I still like epic tales. Like I still find like, I like big stories. I like big personalities. I like, you know, and I mean, if you feel like Anne Frank was like, you know, like if, if she grew up to be an adult, like she just, she wouldn't be like a, a small, quiet person. Like she was just a very like, just so much in that and I was also like um it was it was this sort of idea of somebody being that articulate and that present and I wasn't when I was that age also Mm -hmm. I think I was much more sort of um internal in terms of what was going on so it was interesting to see this person who 
um, or read about this person who just had such command over language and even herself in a way that, you know, like she would talk about like fighting with her parents and that always just felt really like, yeah, God, like, like I always remember she was always like thinking very self-consciously about being a teenager mm-hmm. and there's really not that many books that feel like when I was that age anyway that were like true accounts right of being a teenager never mind the crazy circumstance of it but well and it's weird because I think simultaneous a lot of my friends were into those Judy Bloom books mm-hmm. but they never spoke to me I was like I don't need to read a book about like a girl from a suburb like God, like getting her period, like the story is boring. Like <laughs> know that story. I don't need that story. You're living like, that story. Yeah, like that just didn't seem it seemed like not worth my time. Hmm. Like, wait, they're confused and they have to go to a school dance. You know, like, that just so didn't mean teenage anything. Teenage love angst, whatever was Yeah. Not that didn't that didn't make sense, but somehow Anne Frank did. For our chapters listeners, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. If you visit audible.com and sign up for a free 30-day trial, you can download an audiobook for free. Why not check out The Old Man in the Sea by Ernest Hemingway, a book that means so much to our guest Liz Fleming. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com/chapters. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash chapters for your free audiobook. Now, let's get back to the show. For Deb Bowen, a psychic and co-host of the Psychic Teacher podcast, an experience with Mary Stewart's series of books on Merlin, including The Crystal Cave and The Hallow Hills, helped her articulate a belief in reincarnation. For some readers, books can transport us to new worlds or even into the past. But for Deb, this was literally true. Both Mary Stewart's books and Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee gave Deb a sense of awareness that she'd been to the setting of these books before, in another life. And the scene where um, Merlin disguises King Uther and takes him to Tintagel Castle up on that cliff for uh, to to have relationships with Lady Agraine to to so she could bear King Arthur, I stopped breathing. I knew I was home. I was reading about a place I had been before. Oh wow! And so that book was one of the books that led me to really begin to research reincarnation. Oh wow! Time. And and uh, again, it was one of those things. Not only not only did I have to go to South Dakota because I knew I had lived there before. I know I had. I also had to go to Cornwall. And I, the first time I stood on that cliff at Tintagel, I just I sobbed. I was home. Wow. I had now, when you say that you had been there before, what does that mean to you? It it means that I had awareness of. It was so familiar that I knew that I had lived there in a past life. Wow. I mean, I just knew I had. I just knew I had. Wow. So the book helped you to access a past life and the first time that even a consciousness that you had had past lives. That's what Wounded Knee did. Bury my heart at Wounded Knee. That's what that did in, in those past lives that I had in the Lakota world. And then that's what Mary Stewart's Merlin books, the Arthurian books, did for me in Cornwall. Deb's sense of connection to a past life may be unique among guests we met this year, 
but many guests could relate to discovering something about themselves through books. For Alison Horrocks, our guest on episode 16, that discovery came when she read Harriet the Spy as a child. The book presented an impulse that had already made its way into her life, the desire to investigate. Like Harriet, Allison conducted investigations in her own life, recording conversations in her house on a Fisher-Price recorder. As an adult, Allison continues to investigate as a reader of true crime books. Tracking down stories and leads also inspired her to become a historian in her professional life. Here she talks about the Harriet the Spy impulse that she believes all great writers and historians have. What I will say is I think one thing that people who write really good fiction and write really good historical nonfiction is we all have that Harriet the Spy impulse. You know, we're looking for those details. We're chasing down leads. And a lot of times, let's be frank, we're solving non-mysteries. Like, we're solving things that no one has asked about, or we're trying to put together puzzles that no one even knew existed. Some of our guests describe the sensory experience of reading, of holding a book in your hands, or reading in a special place. You may remember Mark Barone on episode 20, who loves keeping his books in pristine condition. As evidence of that, he told me about protecting his books in his backpack at school by storing them inside pasta boxes. For some of our other guests, the condition of their books is less important than the places they read them. Heather Parker will only read Henry James at the beach, for example. Um, I have a habit of, and this is going to sound a little bit weird, I guess, because people define beach reading in a particular way. Um, I really love Henry James and find reading his work at home too distracting because there's too many things that I'm responsible for here that I'm thinking like, oh, I should really empty the dishwasher. I shouldn't be reading this. I just can't relax enough to really enjoy his prose. So if I'm at the beach, I'm physically removed from everything. It's very warm. It feels very luxurious. It's a day off. And so I, it took me like two or three years, read Portrait of a Lady, only at the beach. So I'd only make it to the beach like three or four times a summer and I would read as much as I could. And it's a thick book. And I finally got through it. It was awesome. What drew you to Henry James? Why did you pick that book? Do you remember? Well, Portrait of a Lady, my friend in New York gave me because she knows that I like Henry James. But I remember reading, you know, Turn of the Screw was fine. But again, oh, well, this goes back to one of the pieces of literature that I came across, I think, when I was in college that just, it's one of those moments where I read it and, like, the room gets quiet and all I can hear is my heart beating in my ears, which was um, Beast in the Jungle, which is more of a short story, I think. It's not really a, a book. But he's writing about this character um, who thinks that this terrible thing is going to befall him, and he's waiting for it. He's you know waiting for this beast in the jungle, like, okay, I'm going to be prepared. And so he meets this young woman who you can tell has feelings for him, and they keep meeting up, and they're very, you know, friendly with one another, and they meet up in, you know, unexpected times, like, in, you know, they were both invited to a friend's house, like, oh, you're here, how nice to see you, when they catch up a little bit, and this goes on for years, and it's clear that she has feelings for him, but he just, he's too much of an idiot, and basically says along the lines of, like, no, I must prepare for the beast in the jungle, there's this fate awaiting me, I can feel it. And she kind of, you know, sighs and leaves, and then finally comes to him, and she's very ill, and it turns out, you know, she has had feelings for him all along, but now he's going. Now she's going to die, and she does die. And he realizes, 
That's right. That was the beast in the jungle. You have, you know, put off your life. You haven't actually lived it. And I remember reading that and thinking, just being horrified at the thought of being too careful hmm. and not, not living fully. How old were you when you read it for the first time? I don't even remember. But when you read it, did you read it and think, I've been too careful to this point? No, or? it felt like a cautionary tale. It felt like you could be too careful. You know, you could be, you know, a little too precious with your own life. <laughs> which sounds sort of silly to say, but this idea of like, oh, living very carefully, living by the rules, oh, I can't, I, oh, this thing's going to happen. Whereas, I mean, for me, it was a little bit like, one, don't believe what, everything you think. And two, you know, life is out there waiting to be grasped. I mean, stop being so fearful and go mm -hmm. live. And it was, I've just never forgotten that. And that was probably my most favorite um, Henry James work and I've been kind of trying to work through the rest of it again under certain circumstances because the house is not really a very encouraging place to read this because there's just too much too much responsibility that I can't really relax and I mean I I love his writing so much I mean I thought after the fact like I wonder I wonder how many other people are laughing reading Henry James laying on the beach hmm probably not so many looking around at what other people are reading which you know looks very bright and flashy and beach reedy it's not your style. Mm, no, no. You should not have time for that. Hmm. But it's interesting that you've picked something in particular just for the beach. Yeah, well, I like his work so much. Again, I just, it just feels like, you know, luxury piled on top of luxury. So a day off, and then at one of my very favorite places. And it's really, it's really warm, and it just feels, you know, there's like a nice atmosphere of people around so that you're there with other humanity, but no one's directly infringing upon you. Um, and then you get to read literature that you love, you know, at your own speed. Hmm. And just, and for hours, and it feels so nice. For Heather, reading Henry James on the beach is decadent, and the substance of his stories and novels have helped to give her life some perspective. Casper Turkile, host of the podcast Harry Potter as a Sacred Text, spoke about an essential quality for ministers that drives how he uses Harry Potter as a text that can help readers make meaning in their own lives. The job of ministers in meaning-making, he told me, is essentially to tell stories. I mean, the phrase meaning-making, it really comes from divinity school. So we actually have a class called meaning-making where um, you get together every week with uh, with your peers and um, someone brings a case from the work that they're doing off campus um, and you you try and kind of um, bring theological resources to to help that person think through the, the situation that they're in. Um, a lot of the, the theological resources are often stories, whether they're stories mm. from, you know, from a, from a, a faith tradition. I mean, Dumbledore often gets raised in those <laughs> contexts because it's just, you know, it's like a wise person who people like me grew up with. Um, so you often hear Dumbledore as often as you do Jesus in those kind of <laughs> classroom experiences, which is a lot of fun. But it's, it's really about kind of offering the person who's maybe stuck or finding it difficult to cope with this difficult relational situation um, a new way to think about the context that they're in. Um, so that's, uh, that, yeah, that's why that mm. phrase means. And I'm wondering, comes. I'm wondering, too, if, um, if you're preparing to be a chaplain for non-religious people, if then that creates an even bigger space for literature or stories more broadly to kind of stand in as an authority or as a resource. Definitely. And I, I think, you know, something, and this may be generational or it may be timeless, but I think 
you know, especially people who, who are not, who don't see themselves as religious are very, very skeptical of any sort of, um, you know, authoritative advice from, uh, you know, from, from the world of religion. But I think what, what the best kind of ministers do is just tell stories. Um, and you can see yourself in different characters in the story and you can experience a, a challenge in a new way by thinking from it, from a different perspective or, you know, just to, uh, to see a bigger picture or a bigger context in, in this other story. And it often takes the sting out of a conversation. If you can talk about the story rather than what's like actually happening for you right now. Mm. Um, so I think that's a, it's a really key skill in, in ministry is, is learning how to tell stories. The language of stories can give readers a means of explaining their own experiences. For Kathy Van Voorhees, it was Stephen King's The Stand that helped her deal with PTSD stemming from a traumatic experience. I was going through a difficult time. I um, had a traumatic experience and it was going through PTSD. And that's when I read The, the Stand by Stephen King, which bizarrely was helpful to me at a time when here I am in the throes of PTSD and part of that PTSD was nightmares and flashes of um, an assault and then having problems like maintaining reality in my life and going back to work. At that point, I was working for the student exchange organization and those things. But it's at first, the book was just um, like a big, thick book just to kind of sink my teeth into and be an escape. But in the in the book, The Stand, in the book is about um, there's like a cold or a virus that takes over the country and everyone dies except for the like 0.05% that would naturally be immune to it. So it's a dystopian book in that sense. And that it's like there's that then like electricity goes away and all those systems that have us keep us going as a society. And there were interesting themes in that book. And one was that with all those things gone, people's own intuition grew again. Like there are these muscles that had atrophied and then they had to start to use them again. So people would, because they can just call someone, they'd think about someone or they'd send sort of a telepathic kind of message. And then the other thing that happened in that book is it was, it eventually becomes like a stand of good and evil. And so the people that are, I guess, sort of inherently evil started having dreams of like an evil leader that they would eventually go find in Las Vegas. And then the people that were more inherently good, I suppose, would have dreams of this, you know, benevolent good leader that they found in like Boulder, Colorado. And it was just that, as I said, I'd always had vivid dreams. And here, my dreams had always been something like helpful to me in life. And then having the PTSD, they really became more nightmares. And for the first time, it was like in my own personal life, my dreams had sort of turned against me. Mm. Um, But then I read this book, which, you know, had this theme of the dreams. And at the time, I hadn't consciously picked it. I didn't know anything about it. All I knew was here was Stephen King that had just been re-released with like extra pages, um, the unabridged version. And so it was like the hot thing at the time. And Had you you read this book before? No, I hadn't read it before. So I had never Mm. read the the shorter version. I I didn't know anything really about it when I picked it up. and and then, you know, I think it. I read it, and it's a huge book. I think I read it in like three or four, five days, maybe. But um, 
then after that, as I was going through this and trying to like get back to work and do all these things, I had this amazing dream and I dreamt that I was in walking through caverns like Luray Caverns, which we have out in the Shenandoah. You know, where they have the stalactites and the stalagmites. And you're kind of walking through this like cave and looking at everything. And I'm by myself and I'm walking through and I hear this woman's voice ahead of me that's a very like confident, reassuring voice. And I'm just following her and I trust this voice. And I'm thinking, I'm like, that voice sounds so familiar and I can't place it. And then the woman walks by um, some water and there's a reflection in the water and I see her and it's me. It's mm. an older version of myself. And that was just such, that dream is what I attached all kind of meaning to that dream. And it's what sort of got me out of that dysfunctional phase. And in looking back on it, it's just fascinating to me that here I was reading this book about dreams and people following the dreams. And of all things, it's like Stephen King. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think very few people would guess that anyone would turn to Stephen King, you know, after going through something so terrible and so awful and trying to find a way forward. Right. I mean, to go from a horrifying experience to like a horror book <laughs> as sanctuary just doesn't make sense on any level. Besides making meaning, our guests shared that books help them connect to other people. In a conversation with our very first guest, Jordan, we talked about using books as a way of knowing someone else. The answer to the question, which Harry Potter character are you? Or, on an even more self-selecting level, what does Anne of Green Gables mean to you might be indicative of someone's friendship potential. Or offer a kind of literary self-portrait as a sign of compatibility. For Danny Byrne, our guest on episode 25, a book exchange with his now wife helped to bring them closer at the start of their relationship. So when I first met Marlene, she was actually dating someone. So <laughs> I wasn't, you know, I, we weren't in any sort of um, romantic relationship yet. <laughs> but uh, I mean, as a, we certainly exchanged ideas and stuff, but um, I think as we began dating and becoming more intimate. Um, and you know, where, when we were just housemates, you know, it was very kind of not to say like, I think all of my housemates, we all had strong relationships because, you know, we were living side by side, but, um, when we were able to kind of be more one-on-one -on -one is when I really sort of, um, when we both started talking more about the books that we enjoyed, the things that, um, inspired us and all this stuff. And we actually, we did one year of distance before I moved to Connecticut, um, after our JV year. And we had a book club together, <laughs> a book club being just us two reading books together. It's adorable. Um, yeah, it was fun. <laughs> um, and then we would, well, we were to read it, read the book. And then at the end of the month, we were supposed to chat about it on the phone, which was very funny. Um, but that was fun. So that was, I think, kind of where we were exploring um, a lot of, you know, what the other likes, the tastes of the other, because, you know, if, if I recommended a book, um, it probably would be more geared towards, like, perhaps fiction, like uh, crime fiction, <laughs> whereas Marlena might have something more um, like Jane Austen. Um, so 
that definitely helped. And then once I moved to Connecticut, all the more so, because then we had uh, a collection of books that we could trade with one another. Um, so I think uh, it's our, uh, our book sharing has definitely evolved <laughs> throughout our relationship. We look forward to sharing many more stories in the next year. If you'd like yours to be one of them, please visit us on our website, www.chapterspod.com. When I listen back to these clips, it only affirms something I've long known to be true, which is that everyone's story matters and is worth telling. If you've lived by stories, we want to hear yours. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at chapterspod. You can find me at Mary Mahoney123 and Taylor at MJT the PhD. I just want to take a minute to thank Taylor for all of her help. As I mentioned at the start, Taylor wrote our theme music and does all of our sound and editing. We're going on hiatus through January 1st to work on producing new episodes. Thanks to all of our listeners. I so look forward to sharing new stories in the new year. Thanks for listening. <laughs>